Good morning. This is All People's Church coming to you from Flagstaff, Arizona. Today's date is April 3rd, 2022. We are continuing our verse-by-verse study of 2 Corinthians. Today we are in the fifth chapter. We will begin by reading all 21 verses. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desire to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, the mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also are well known in his conscience. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on your behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are besides ourselves, it is for God, or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become anew. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the world of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. May God add his blessings to the reading of his holy word. Denise, would you return to verse 1 and and begin reading there? For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Verse 2 also, please. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. This is the 
the Christian's secret power and totally baffles our physical and spiritual enemies. What am I talking about here? He says in verse 1, For we know that our, our earthly house, this tent, if it is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. He's saying, look, if this house, if this tent is rent, if this body is destroyed, we have a body waiting for us, an eternal body that God's prepared for us. Verse 2 says, For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with that habitation which is from heaven. He says we even groan. We even, we seek it, which is, is strange. Again, it's what I'm saying. This is, this is way past just the teaching of salvation. Not only are we unafraid of death, but in a really radical, unexplainable way, at a particular level, we welcome it. I know that's weird, but it's, it's true if you really comprehend what awaits you. The unsaved cannot comprehend this, verse 3 and 4. If indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. If we do groan sometimes, it is because we know there is something awaiting us which is much better. But are now still burdened by all of the restraints, the tiredness, aches and pains, diseases and sicknesses, and the care, the very care and feeding of this earthly tent. We want to be further clothed, that is, with the much better eternal body God has prepared for us. Verse 5. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So God's prepared us for this. If we will avail ourselves of it, God has prepared us for it. It's one of those things where it's sort of part of the, the whole package of salvation. Not only are you forgiven of your sins, but the fear of death is banished. That salvation has bought you an eternal home on the other side of the, of the dividing line between life and death. And so that's one of the benefits. God's prepared us for this and given us this benefit. This is God's plan. We will be clothed with a new body. Think much better. Think huge upgrade. It's <laughs> the way we often say it in our society. No sickness, no toothaches, no arthritis, no allergies, no decay, and no further death. The proof of this future gift, and this is important, the proof of this future gift is the Holy Spirit's residence in this carnal body. So the knowledge that you know that the Holy Spirit dwells with you, that again, that's part of the salvation package, is that you know that the Holy Spirit's with you. And the way you know it is because He speaks to you. He talks to you about things that you would not normally consider. That's one of the key ways for me anyway. And you may have a different take on that in some way. But I know that when all of a sudden I'm confronted with a thought that would not be my thought, and it's usually about what we learned in a previous chapter, the Holy Spirit's ministry is righteousness. Almost all of the things that the Holy Spirit talks to me about are personal things, really. I'll say most of the things 
because I don't want to make it sound like that's the only thing he talks to me about, but I think that's the majority of what he talks to me about. He talks to me about me. And that's how I know that I was saved. I really was saved. And it's a real experience. And I know that my daughter, for example, she talks to me a lot about the, the journey of salvation, the continuing experience of salvation, the continuing growth, as it were, into salvation. And I, I agree with that idea too, but I think there's a moment, even in a, in a, even in a continuing spectrum, or uh, the word I'm trying to think of escapes me at the moment, but in a continuum, in a continuing graph, if you were, of the Christian experience of salvation, the increasing knowledge of salvation, the increasing understanding of salvation, I think there comes a point, though, in every person's life when they go, okay, I got it. I understand it. And then it's at that moment, and I don't know where that moment is for anyone else, but when you get to that moment, I know you have a realization in your heart, okay, I've, I understand this now. I am saved. Something has happened to me on the inside. It might have been gradual, and it is gradual for a certain percentage of people. And then there's other people like me. The, the gradual part was in the decision. From the very earliest idea I had of salvation, I knew that I had to count the cost. And because of that, I did not want to be saved. I just did not want to give up control. And I thought I could, whatever God could do for me, I could do for me. And someone might say, well, Jerry, that was your, that was your journey of faith. Because you were, you were working your way through that. Well, okay, I accept that. But there was a moment when I said, okay, Lord, I give in. It's your way or no way because I've tried it my way and it is horrible. I'm, I'm not able to do this. Wherever that point is for someone, I'm just saying, God provides salvation for us. And part of that package deal is the Holy Spirit. So he will speak to you. And he will guide you into righteousness because that's God's plan for, for all of us. And I'm not going to re-preach that. Where are we at here? Mm, verse 6. Verse 6. Would you read? So we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. We should be completely unafraid of death. <laughs> are we? <laughs> uh, you know, we're not confronted with death this morning, right? I'm not going to say that what my reaction, at least what my initial reaction is, but once I get myself under control, I want to default back to this position, which is we should be completely unafraid of death. We don't seek it because we have much to do here and others depend on us and love us, but death holds no terror for us. That doesn't mean we're, so this doesn't mean we're suicidal by no means. We are, as a disciple, one of the characteristics of a disciple is responsibility. Disciples feel that responsibility toward others, toward all of their obligations. So we don't, we don't just say we're ready to check out. But what we are saying is that if our time comes, we're not afraid. Verse 7. For we walk by faith, not by sight. That's beautiful scripture. I hope that you enjoy the fact that it's in our study today. We as Christians often seem to be out of our mind to those whose only purpose seems to be to seek their own pleasure. 
And if I was unsaved, that's all I would be doing. I admit it. I would be seeking my own pleasure. I'd be doing whatever I wanted to do. I would not be at church on Sunday morning. I would be doing something else. We constantly put off current gratification knowing that our reward is on the other side of death. Verse 8. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. I highlighted and underlined well pleased. We are confident, right? Once you know you're saved, when you've got this thing nailed down, you're saved. You know you're saved. You have confidence. So we are confident, yes, and even more than just confident, what does it say? Well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. If we Christians sometimes seem like we have just won the lottery, this is why. It is hard not to smile, to not have peace even in the middle of a storm when you comprehend that our future is fixed and includes benefits that are really so wonderful and different that they are beyond comprehension. To say that in comparison we are leaving a cold, dark, wet cave for a bright, warm, elegant mansion does not begin to convey the truth of what awaits us. And I put, I was trying to think of examples of how different our future existence will be. And I used a, I just used an airline example. We are not going from economy to first class, which would be pretty good, right? But from riding with the luggage in the cargo compartment to royal service in first class. And Denise knows what royal service is. It is China, white linens, flowers. I'm talking like you're in a five-star restaurant. That's what royal service is. So, we're, so the, the idea here is we're well pleased. Even in the midst of difficulties, if we have an underlying confidence, if we have an underlying sense of peace, and even if we have, shall I dare say, a smile on our face, it's because we know that this is not the end. What we're going through right now is not final. Where we're going, where we are going, is final. And it is a huge upgrade from anything we know of on this side. In fact, I know that this is being Jerry's heavenly-minded kind of talk, but I want you to know that it's beyond your comprehension. And it's beyond my comprehension. Heaven will be heaven. <laughs> so don't get too enamored of this world or the things of this world or the trappings of this world. We have a home on the other side. If I might finish this out, this does not even begin to account for or acknowledge the joy of seeing our Savior and King. He is going to be the icing on the cake, okay? To be in his presence through all eternity. It's like, Lord, wherever you're going, that's where I want to be. Verse 9. Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. Therefore we make it our aim. I highlighted that. Whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. I highlighted and underlined that. Think about it. Therefore we make it our aim. That's what Paul's talking. He's, he's talking about himself 
and his disciples, Timothy and all those guys that hang with him, he always uses the term we. He seldom ever says I. He's always talking about the whole team. But he's also writing in a way that we can incorporate it. We can, we can take ownership of what he's, re what he's writing. He says, therefore, we make it our aim to be well-pleasing to him. He says, that's what motivates me. He says, I know that there's something awaiting me. This is what motivates the disciple, the truth of the gospel, the reality of the change salvation has wrought in us. The peace, the joy, the comfort is so strong, it is more real than what we can see and touch, or it should be. We truly want to please him. Verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. As you can imagine, I, I totally highlighted that whole verse. I underlined, receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Eternity motivates the disciple. Receive the things done in the body is speaking of the rewards to be handed out by our master. The average convert thinks of their salvation as mere fire insurance. Those who comprehend God's kingdom at a deeper level know that what we do here on earth right now, how we conduct ourselves is observed and noted in heaven and will be the basis for future rewards. This is not normally taught. It's normally not taught in any, most churches for sure, and I can't remember this being taught. I'm just going to have to tell you the truth. I don't remember it being taught as a fundamental principle. But Paul is completely convinced of it. He says that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. He minces no words. He doesn't beat around the bush with this. He says it very plainly, and it's very understandable. But the problem that we have as American Christians is we don't want to think that what we are doing has an impact on the future, on our eternal life. Why? Because here in America, unfortunately, a lot of times we as Christians try to live as much like the world as we can, enjoy as many pleasures of the world as we can, and still feel like we've got a toehold in Christianity. That's the reason this is not taught, but it's the reason that I do want to teach it, which is the old saying is, if you're falling out of bed, get into the center of the bed. And that's exactly what I'm saying. Don't play with fire, and the fire being the temptations of this world. Don't entertain them. Turn from them. Put as much distance between you and them as you can. You know, I'm talking figuratively. In actuality, that's exactly what I mean. Whatever it takes to prevent you being pulled in the wrong direction, do it. Sometimes that requires, I'm not speaking to anyone here in particular, okay? This doesn't have anything to do with the disciples that are attending church today. But it has everything to do with the church as a whole. And if a person finds out that a particular relationship continues to pull them down, when we think about people that are recently saved, 
One of the things that's going to have to happen for that person is they are going to have to own up to friends and family and tell them that they have accepted Christ. It's very important to do that. And why? Because they are going to have to make some decisions in some of their relationships. And I think often of, let's say that someone is saved and delivered from alcoholism or drug abuse or some other sin or, or life-controlling situation. And one of their friends wants to come over and wants to get them to go party with them, for example. Guess what? You have to, at some point, you have to make a decision. You have to make a parting with that person that is trying to pull you back down into what was destroying you and destroying all your relationships besides the fact that it's sin. But you don't want to go back that way. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Verse 11, Denise. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God and also trust are well known in your consciences. This is the opposite and negative side of rewards for those who disregard God's free gift. This is hard teaching this morning. It's completely in accordance with the teaching of Romans, okay? But it's hard teaching. Paul uses the word terror to describe standing before the Lord unprepared and without hope. I think that is an accurate word to use. It is akin to the worst feeling that you can imagine ever happening to you, which might be approximated by the time when you show up at class, especially in the higher levels of education, and you realize you are totally unprepared for the test. Whatever caused the, un the unpreparation, <laughs> you know that this is not going to work out well. You know that there's, the results are going to be very, very unpleasant. You can think of that in all kinds of different ways. And there's lots of jobs where you have to take tests and you are examined, I guess is the best way to say it. And when you know that you're unprepared, terror <laughs> may be a strong word for that, but not when you stand before God. When you realize at that moment that all of the things that you knew about God from His Word are true and that you disregarded them. Terror is what you are going to feel. To us, Jesus is our dearest friend. To be unsaved, to the unsaved though, He is a terrible judge. Paul says this knowledge motivates him to persuade others to accept Jesus as Savior. Verse 12. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. Note the word he says, who boast in appearance and not in heart. I think he used the, those, a similar phrase previously. But the point he's trying to make is, I'm not trying to impress you by recounting my deeds done for the Lord. See, he's saying that. He's saying, look, I... I don't want to be commending myself to you guys again. Sis, but it is important for you to know enough about my work so that you can counteract the things said by those who oppose me and say we have no authority to correct. 
You say, well, Jerry, you're getting a whole lot out of that one scripture. No, what I'm really doing is I'm taking everything that we've learned from 1 Corinthians and the first four chapters of 2 Corinthians, and I'm, I'm telling you what I believe Paul is saying. He's saying, I'm telling you guys all about my ministry, about the difficulties and the exploits of my ministry, but there's a purpose. He says, and let there be no doubt about what has caused this uproar, and I'm saying, and let there be no doubt about what has caused this uproar in the congregation at Corinth. It is all about Paul exercising his authority and responsibility to correct members of the congregation, right? That's what's caused all of this stuff that Paul's gone through. That's the reason he was resisted by such a sizable minority of the church at my, in Corinth. That's the reason they questioned his authority. They even questioned whether or not he's really an apostle. So he's saying, look, this is the reason I'm telling you these things is so that you'll know more about me and so that when you confront one of those people, you will have information, real information that you heard from me and you can say, let me tell you about what Paul's been doing. Let me tell you how Paul came to be in a position of authority over this church. One of the things that we ought to do also and all of you disciples that I'm talking to you this morning, is be aware when someone comes to you and they're critical of the pastorate over you. One day, Denise and I will be long gone, and you guys will still be in a church somewhere. It'll be a different church, different pastors, and so this really doesn't apply to me and Denise. That's not the reason I'm saying it. Realize that sometimes you need to defend your pastor. You need to say, wait a minute, let's get the whole story. In fact, one of the things you can do when you hear someone saying things that you think are unfounded or untrue is you can say, stop, let's go see pastor right now and let's get this settled. You said he did this or he did that or this happened in the past. Let's go find out. Let's get both sides of this story and let's get this worked out today. And that's really what Paul is saying. Look, he says, look, guys, you need to know. You need to know about me. And you need to be able to answer those who are unfairly criticizing what we're doing. And you need to understand the motivations for what they're saying. Verse 13. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. Yeah. So he's finishing up this thought. He says, so if it sounds like I've lost my mind because I talk this way, that is recounting the difficulties and the, and the exploits of my ministry. No that I'm only doing it for the sake of God's work and for your benefit. He says, I, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't defend myself except it's for you. It's, and it's for the benefit of the church. Verse 14 and 15. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. There's not a whole lot to say about this, but I did underline, for the love of Christ compels us. He says, that's what motivates me. That those who live should live no longer for themselves. Right? I mean, I'm talking discipleship stuff today. He's saying, look, what we're talking about here is mature Christianity. That those who live should live no longer for themselves but for him who died for them and rose again, he says, look, I am motivated by the love of Christ and I want to do all that I can for him who died for me and has risen again. 
For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Not only do we avoid the terror of standing before the judgment seat, and not only do we have joys beyond comprehension, such as the new body that awaits us, but also the very love of Christ himself motivates us. The hardships, the beatings, the insults, the lack of respect from many in the churches, it is all accepted and embraced because we live and work for him and unashamedly love him. Verse 16. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. When you get to this level where you no longer regard others according to the flesh, you have made great progress. And you can know you are far along on the road of maturity in Christ. It is the hardest thing for us to do is to no longer regard others according to the flesh. Verses 17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, guys, this verse deserves a whole hour of teaching, and, I, and it's going to be left for another time. But it's one of the most important verses in the entire Bible. But it, it, really, it really is deep. And like I say, I think you could easily talk for an hour on that one verse. Verse 18. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Can you hear the wisdom of this tried and true saint of God? We regard no one according to the flesh. And now he says, now all things are of God. He is completely consumed with the spiritual. You can get the sense that the worldly and the carnal have no interest to him. All he thinks about is spreading the good news of reconciliation to God through Jesus. Now, I'm not saying I've attained his level. I'm not saying that I've met anybody that's attained this level of devotion to Christ. But I'm saying that Paul said, he said he had. He says, now all things are of God. Verse 19. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. I underlined, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Sometimes a verse like this helps me to refocus on my purpose also. Our message is reconciliation through Christ. It's that simple, verse 20 and 21. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Verse 21. It is the message of salvation in a nutshell. I looked at verses 20 and 21, and I underlined, we are ambassadors for Christ. That's a neat statement. You know, an ambassador is a person that is usually very well respected in their home country. Usually a high-level person, if you will, whether it's they're a high-level person from business or academia or, or whatever, but they are a high-quality person that knows how to get along with other people. 
That's what an ambassador does. That's one of the things. When you send an ambassador to a different country, to a different city, whatever, you expect them to represent you well. You expect them to look good. You expect them to act appropriately. You expect them to be friendly and truthful. An ambassador is a great term for what we are for Christ. He says we are ambassadors for Christ. As people get older, a lot of times, they get cranky. They get rather mean. <laughs> they just don't put up with stuff, right? If you're an ambassador for Christ, even if you're an old person, you don't act that way. You talk kindly to people. You're respectful. There's no room in God's kingdom for us to be mean to other people. <laughs> There's no room for us to look down on other people. There's no room for us to be short or just unpleasant. He says, look, and, and Paul's saying, look, no, 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 no. We are ambassadors. All of the things that we might want to do, you know, that we might want to say, the way we might want to act, we, we say, no, no, no. I belong to the Lord. I work for the Lord. And I'm his ambassador. And so because of that, I always want to put my best foot forward. Any place, anytime, anywhere, with whomever I'm speaking, I want to do the very best I can for Jesus Christ. And then if I have an opportunity at some point to talk to them or someone that was listening or observing, then I haven't tainted the waters. I haven't spoiled the meal. I've done my best to be as pleasant as I could in Christ's service. He says, and I underline, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Guys, this is a beautiful scripture. I know that when we go through these chapters, sometimes it just seems like, is there anything really good? You know, is there anything past John 3.16? Is there anything past the Gospels? The answer is yes. The Gospels are awesome. They are the very history, the very eyewitnesses accounts of what our Lord did and said on this planet. And they are the, the perfect starting place for anyone who is on beginning their journey in Christianity. But I also want to tell you that these New Testament epistles are very valuable. If you can see, when he says something like this, he says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There is a world of understanding in that statement that we can benefit from. So in conclusion, let's talk about verse 21. It is the salvation message in a nutshell. To me, it is the simplest and most concise explanation of salvation found anywhere in the Bible. It is this powerful and understandable explanation of God's grace toward us that gives the Christian the ability and confidence to say to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Let us live in such a way as to honor so great a sacrifice by both the Father and the Son as is found in verse 21. And I would like to read it again in conclusion. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Amen. Amen. This message has been brought to you by All People's Church of Arizona. We are a virtual church headquartered in Flagstaff. If you have found this audio message to be useful, 
and you would like to join us for our Sunday service, please find the Zoom link on our website at apcofaz.org. Our service starts at 10 a.m. Mountain Standard Time. If you would like to know more about eternal life through Jesus, continue to listen for more information. The first and most important step to eternal life through Jesus is to accept Him as your Lord and Savior. It is an act of the will. The basics of salvation or reconciliation with God the Father can be summarized in three statements. First, you must understand that we are all spiritually dead, that is, separated from God, and cannot be reconciled to Him on our own. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have all sinned and have no means to atone for our sins. We have no remedy. Second, you must believe in your heart that Jesus is the one sent by God. The Bible says in John 20.31, But these are written, speaking of the signs that Jesus did during his earthly ministry, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The sacrifice of his Son was God's plan for salvation for all humanity. Our only part in this plan is whether or not we will believe it and accept it. Third, confess with your mouth. In Romans 10, 9, and 10, it is written that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Essentially, this is very simple. It means you must pronounce your faith to God in prayer. There is no right prayer. Prayer is conversation, so say to God what is really in your heart. Many sample prayers include affirmative statements concerning the three points above, such as this one. Father in heaven, I have sinned against you. I have hurt other people and I've hurt myself. I believe you sent Jesus to die for my sins. I accept your gift of salvation. Thank you for forgiving my sins. Help me to love and live as a follower of Jesus should. In Jesus' holy name I pray. Amen. Finally, go to church on Sunday to strengthen your faith. Accepting Christ Jesus as your Savior is the first step, but the journey of faith is a long one. There is much to learn and you will need friends to help. We would love for you to attend All People's Church and become part of our fellowship. As noted above, it is as easy as clicking on the Zoom link found at apcofaz.org. Contact me by Facebook Messenger or by email at apcofarizona at protonmail.com for more information or to talk about faith in Jesus Christ. My prayers are with you, and I hope to hear from you. This concludes our message for today.